I'm the lead pastor here at Discover. Uh, my name is Steve. If we haven't met before, I'm the lead pastor here at Discovery. And uh, again, just a thank you to, to Kevin for the work that you've been doing. And um, you guys will get to hear a little bit more about some of that work next Sunday in different ways. But uh, really grateful for Kevin in particular, but, but for all of you who serve here at Discovery and make what we do possible. A lot of that is... Uh, behind the scenes and maybe hidden uh, because it's not something that happens up on stage or up front and yet so vital and so important. And that hiddenness is actually a theme that we're going to be exploring today in Matthew chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 6. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and someone on our team will come around and make sure that you have one of those. Um, and uh, just a, it's something that we love to be able to do is, is provide people with Bibles. So if you need one, not just for today, but even for the rest of the week, uh, please feel free to take that with you. As they're doing that, a couple of things I just want to follow up on. Uh, one announcement and then one thing that we talked about last Sunday. So last Sunday we introduced to you that Yuan Chang is, uh, has gone through a vetting and training process, uh, is a prospective elder with us. And the last step in our elder confirmation process is to uh, present him as a candidate to the congregation to say, uh, that he's a candidate and that we would welcome any feedback that you have. If there are concerns or questions or affirmations, if you want to just tell us about how great UN is, you, you're free to do that. That's totally fine. Um, and if you have questions about the eldership process here at Discovery in general, please uh, reach out. We would love to talk to you more about that, whether you send an email to the email that's up there on the screen or talk to me personally about it uh, or any, any one of our other elders. We'd love to answer those questions for you. All right, and then the last thing is this. We, again, this Discover Discovery class is happening today right after the gathering. <clears throat> and we'll be uh, in a room that's sort of behind the stage. You get there through this hallway that runs alongside uh, the auditorium here about 15 minutes afterwards. And here's what I want to say about it. I, I think these kinds of things, these kinds of experiences are oftentimes packaged by churches as, hey, you're new, you're trying to figure out if this is your, it could be a home church for you, come to this. And it is certainly... That. We hope that it is that for those of you who are going through that process of figuring out more about who we are as a church and if you want to call this church your home. But in addition to that, particularly this year in 2019, my encouragement is for all of us, however long you've been here, however much you think you know about the Discovery story, for all of us who call Discovery home to go through this class at some point. So maybe you're not able to come today or, or go through the cycle that we're doing here in January. We will do this six, seven, eight more times over the course of the year. And so please do what it takes to be at one of those sessions. I think it's going to go a long way towards building culture and casting vision and getting on the same page as a congregation as we move forward. So I want to make sure that that is extended to everybody. All right, let me take a moment here and pray, and then we'll begin our conversation on Matthew chapter 6. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to be able to gather like, like we do here on Sunday morning. We are the church Monday through Sunday, wherever you have us in all these different places. We are representatives of Jesus, of your church, of your kingdom. And yet there is something really special about being able to gather in this sort of moment, to sing together, to worship, to listen to scripture together, to even just have a cup of coffee and hang out, God. And so we are... Grateful that we have this time in this space. 
But we do pray for the rest of our time as well. And as we get deeper into this conversation about the kingdom of God, as we learn what it means to pray towards these ends of the kingdom and shalom, even, God, this weekend as we think about and celebrate the life of someone like Martin Luther King Jr., these these people who have gone before us as representatives of your kingdom, may, may we be that for this community of Davis. May we be a a light, may we be that salt that you talk about, pointing people towards your shalom, your goodness, your wholeness, your peace, your justice, the way that you have intended your creation to function, the relation, uh, the right relationships that you call us to be a part of. May we continue to move in that direction and inhabit that. Would you soften our hearts now as we look at your word that we may respond in whatever way we need to respond this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to begin here. After Hurricane Katrina, many, many years ago now, I had the privilege of being a part of a team that went to help with some of the cleanup efforts. I was interning at a large church. We sent four or five teams uh, to Gulfport, Mississippi to, to uh, be with people and, and to do some work and some manual labor in that, the couple of months after that storm had hit. It was a really... A unique experience and an awesome trip for so many different reasons. I just want to tell you one story about that experience. Our team stayed at a Baptist church in Gulfport, Mississippi, and this church had survived, for the most part, the storm, and so still had their building and had this property. And they were using it uh, as sort of a staging ground for uh, work that was being done and to host people who were coming in to do different things uh, you know, around the area. And so our team was there. We were there for a week with people who were from all over, uh, all over the country uh, who had come to be a part of the recovery process. And there was this one team from Colorado that had just a bunch of characters on their team. And in particular, they had this one guy. His name was Buddy. And he was this, like, he was larger than life. He was literally a large man. And he was loud and boisterous, and he would um, make the rounds every day at the end of the day after all the work that had been done. And he would sort of hold court with each of the teams, telling them about the things that they had been a part of and just really good storyteller and a funny guy. But one of the critical parts of his daily updates was to tell us about the eternal security of this one individual who was on their team. And this particular guy was straight out of central casting for like your stereotype of a biker. He had tattoos all over his arms. He, he wore the leather vest without the shirt underneath it. He had bandanas. He had like 12 bandanas on his head and his arms and coming out of his pockets, handlebar mustache, the whole nine yards. And so every day, Buddy would come and he would tell us about this guy, about Biker Dude, informing us about, again, just where he was with Jesus, that he was not a Jesus follower. And this was the big thing. Buddy would inform us that by the end of the week, he was going to get him. And if you're not sure what I mean by that, this is what I mean. Buddy was saying, by the end of the week, I am going to make sure that biker dude makes a decision about where he stands with Jesus. Now, in the middle of that week, Buddy's team had the opportunity to go to New Orleans. And so they were going to drive there, do some work, and then come back That evening, and Buddy was so excited about this opportunity to have Biker Dude in the van for three hours as a captive audience, he was like, I'm gonna get him. And so they go, 
And they come back, and when they come back, Buddy does his rounds, and he very glumly tells us that biker dude gave his life to Jesus. And I was thinking, like, wow, that's amazing. What a great thing. Shouldn't we be happy about this? Shouldn't we be celebrating this? And so I asked Buddy, like, why are you so bummed out about it? And he said, I thought I had another notch on my belt, but I guess it wasn't meant to be. Somebody else got him. Now, I, this, th- there's some humor there. I'm not telling this story, though, to be funny or to make fun of Buddy. I have no idea what was going on in his heart, and, and I do think that at some level he had you know, these good intentions, right, to share Jesus with his friend. But I tell that story, and I begin our, our time here in Matthew 6 there because of this. There is this thing in us, especially for religious, churchy people, where we can care more about the results. We can care more about the appearance of a thing, about the, the, the uh, markers of spirituality. We can care more about notches on our belt and, and less about the process and the way and the manner and the posture with which we do things. Are you with me? Now, just to broaden this a little bit, this is not just an issue in the church. This desire to be, to be seen, to get results, uh, to be affirmed in public ways is not just a church thing, not just a, a churchy person problem, right? There's all these studies that are coming out that are showing that younger and younger generations, the, the number one desire is to be famous. And, and it outweighs even some traditional markers of success, like a career and buying a house and having a, you know, quote-unquote, good job. would rather be famous than have some of those things. And then just to make it really personal, there is this celebrity pastor thing that is going on in, in the church right now where, where the mark of success as a pastor is you know, how many followers you have and how wide your reach is and how many people you are impacting and not so much faithfulness and character and things like that. All of this to say, I think one of the greatest seductions of our age is to trade substance for image, character for results, and faithfulness for fame. And Jesus goes right after this. Very directly in our text today. So again, Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18. And just a a real quick review to get us up to speed in case uh, you're not quite sure where we are at this point. We're now three weeks into this particular section in Matthew's gospel, very famously known as the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of Jesus' most uh, impactful, famous, well-known teachings, both inside and outside the church. We've seen, though, this is actually the, the first of five, sort of part one of five significant teachings in Matthew. And the big theme, if we can distill it down to one thing, the big theme of this sermon is the kingdom of God. And in particular, what life in the kingdom of God should look like. What life could look like if we live with Jesus as our king. Now, like so many other things that, that Jesus has done to this point in Matthew, we've seen that this teaching is filled with this tension between a, a fulfillment of these long promised truths and then this unexpected, even shocking 
newness. And last week in, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus repeats this refrain. You've heard it said, but now I tell you. You've heard it said, but now I am telling you it's like this. Fulfillment and something new. And so the invitation, the vision that is being cast is that with Jesus as our king, we can actually live like this. Life could actually look like this. It is possible right here, right now, to live in God's kingdom, to live in this kingdom of right relationships. So what we're going to do here is we're going to look at the beginning and the end of our text. This is the sandwich approach to reading the Bible. And then we'll look at the middle here as we come in for a close. So we're going to begin in verse 1, read a couple verses, and then skip down a little bit. You can follow along with me, or the words will be on the screen as well. So Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Skip down to verse 16. Jesus just talked about giving, now he turns to fasting. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So again, real quick, back to to chapter 5. There, Jesus went after this particular heart issue where we go looking for loopholes in in the rules. That mentality of what's the most I can get away with and still be good. Like where's the line and how close can I get to the line before I get in trouble? And we saw how Jesus just blows that, that thinking apart, particularly with the command, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Right? No big deal. Life in the kingdom, just be perfect. And what we saw there is that Jesus is saying the life, the abundant life, this life in the kingdom is not about, is not found in how much can I get away with or uh, what's the least bad thing that I can do. It's found through this deep alignment with God's values, living in right relationship with him and with each other. And so Jesus, in that section, raises the bar. From, from apathy and legalism and moralism to this authentic righteousness. So after throwing down that gauntlet, be perfect as your father is perfect, you might think that Jesus would transition into something a little bit lighter, like a story or a funny parable, but nope. He just keeps turning up the pressure here, revealing that not only do we get it wrong in all the ways that we try to legislate and define our sin, we can also get it wrong in the ways that we do good things. Jesus leaves no wiggle room here, no escape. Now, one of the critical words in our text today is this word hypocrite. And when we think of hypocrites, we, uh, we tend to think of pastors who, who do some heinous thing, right? Or we think of a politician who 
campaigns on one thing, and then when they get into office, they sort of flip on that, and, and, and we go, oh, man, what a hypocrite. Maybe you think of Mandy Moore's character from the movie Save. This is kind of an old movie now. I don't know if you guys can see this, this picture. This is one of my favorite scenes in any movie of all time. So Mandy Moore plays this, like, super religious high school student who's trying, she's sort of like the classic Pharisee. She's trying to make everybody in her class get in line and behave properly. And she's frustrated with this other character who's not following with the program. And so she takes her Bible and she flings it at her as hard as she can. And as she's throwing the Bible at her, she says, I'm filled with Christ's love. And it's just this beautiful image of hypocrisy, right? Like how, how do you do that? So what Jesus is doing again in this section of the sermon is saying a hypocrite is not just that, that person who says one thing and does another, but a hypocrite is someone who can do the right things but for the wrong reasons. Okay, doing the right things but for the wrong reasons. This is a much more subtle definition. And have you noticed how in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus is doing. He's really sort of muddying the waters in a, in a good way. Getting right down to what's really going on below the surface for us. It would be very easy to deceive ourselves. The capacity of the human heart for self-deception is enormous. And so Jesus will talk in this text about reward and what kind of reward are we seeking. We try to do a lot of things. Maybe we try to do a lot of good things. But underneath that, we want that notch on our belt. We may not be as explicit about it as Buddy was, but we want that. You know, we want the likes on our Instagram post. We want our community to give us pats on the back and tell us how great we are and, and, and to recognize the sacrifices we're making and all the amazing things that we do for people. And one of the questions that Jesus asks here, forces us to sit with, is what sort of reward are you looking for? Now the remedy to this, the remedy to seeking the praise and affirmation of people is what we might call a stealthy spirituality. This is what Jesus is inviting us to here, a secret, stealthy spirituality. He calls us to give and fast in secret so that no one will know what you're doing. He's calling us to perform for an audience of one, not for the adulation of the crowds. And this is a really, really hard thing to do. In 2019, in this world in which everybody has a phone and almost everything that you do is being recorded. <laughs> and so I think we especially need the spiritual discipline of secrecy. Now, a, a question, sort of a side question, I think that arises from this stealthy spirituality is, uh, does this contradict, that something, contradict something Jesus says earlier in this very sermon? And, and what about like us as a church or us as people? Do we celebrate the good things that God is doing? Do we talk about, uh, as Kevin just said, do we talk about the money that we raise to help victims of uh, the campfire? Do we talk about those things? Do we share that information with each other? Remember back in chapter 5, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father 
in heaven. So is Jesus contradicting himself here? We need to remember this call to be salt and light comes in the introduction section of the Sermon on the Mount. It's very much connected to the Beatitudes. Remember that list of people that Jesus says are blessed? Many of them are blessed not because they're awesome, but because they're suffering. So there's this sense in which this call to be salt and light does not come from being amazing and doing all kinds of great things. It comes from being meek and poor in spirit and persecuted, which runs totally counter to the trumpet blowing and this seeking of praise that Jesus describes here in our text in chapter 6. So the issue, the question here is motivation, the reward. What are we really seeking? What are we looking for? Is the motivation to be light or to be noticed? Is it to illuminate how beautiful life in God's kingdom can be? Or is it about letting everybody know how awesome we are? When we do things as a church, I think it's appropriate to celebrate them, but we also need to balance that with these questions. Why are we doing this? Is is this simply just a growth strategy? Is this an image management tool? Or is this a reflection of who we are called to be as the body of Jesus in this place at this specific time? We have to always be asking these hard questions questions. And then on a personal level, I think we really do need to sit for a few moments with our approach to social media. And I think a lot of questions we ask about social media are good questions. You know, we ask things about, you know, how many things do we have? And how public do we we make the the stuff that we share? And, And what is an appropriate age for our kids to start engaging with that stuff. These are all really good questions, but I think even uh, just as important, maybe even more important, are the questions underneath that. Why do we do this? Why do we even post stuff in the first place? What kinds of things are we posting about? What is our goal with our social media accounts? Are we sharing out of generosity or are we sharing to draw attention to ourselves, to fill some needs, seeking some sort of reward? How do we engage with this stuff, again, in our world so saturated with images? There's a meme out there that says, do more things that make you forget to check your phone. And I I think that's a good sentiment, right? We should do more things that make us forget to check our phone. I would reword that a little bit, though, to this. Do more things and just don't post about them. I think of the example of Mother Teresa who said, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. And maybe, again, we can paraphrase that to this. We should do more hidden things with great love. Okay? Stealthy spirituality. Now, in between these two calls to do good things with the right motivation comes Jesus' most famous teaching on prayer. And it's almost as if, you know, you know, he hears them asking the question, well, how do we do this? What is it, what, you know, how do we check our motivation and how do we examine ourselves? How do we develop this kind of stealthy spirituality? And, and Jesus just drops this incredible teaching on prayer right in the middle of all that. Look at verse 5. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. So here he goes again, sort of explaining the abuse with this spiritual practice. 
They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now just real quick, those of you who are in groups, do not use these verses against the person in your group who prays too long, okay? (laughs) You know who I'm talking about. Jesus here is going after, again, that very same heart issue, this desire to be seen, taking a, a fundamental, good, spiritual practice like prayer and using it for all of the wrong reasons, to draw attention to ourselves, to make ourselves look more spiritual, to make ourselves look more awesome than we really are. So he sort of tears that down, and then he says, here's the positive side of it, this is how you should pray. And and. We could do a whole sermon. We probably should do a whole sermon just on this prayer. We could even do probably a whole series just on this prayer. But what I want to do here is just walk through five aspects of this prayer. It's famously known as the Lord's Prayer. You've probably had to say it out loud with a group of people at some point in your life if you've been around church at all. But I want to highlight five ways that this helps us cultivate this stealthy spirituality. So the first feature I want to highlight of this prayer is that it is very intimate. And there's intimacy in this prayer. Going off by yourself somewhere alone to speak to your Father. Ten times in these 18 verses we're looking at today, Jesus refers to God as Father. In this kingdom, God is King, but He is also Father. This kingdom is not just about Subjects and governments and power and authority, the kingdom of right relationships is a family, and this family has a good father who invites us into this intimate relationship. This is so important for us. So many of us have had negative experiences with our earthly fathers. A good father delights in his children. A good father does not need his kids to be the valedictorian or the captain of the team or the best at prayer to extend his love to them. And again, unfortunately, I think a lot of us have had that experience of having to earn our father's approval. In the kingdom of God, it is not that way. God as father does not look at us like that. We don't need to earn his approval. This prayer begins in deep intimacy, reminding ourselves we come to a good father who already knows what you need even before you ask. That's how well he knows you. So we begin in intimacy, and then second, we hallow his name. This is a word we don't use a lot, but this is speaking to the holiness of God. And this is really interesting because it creates a bit of a paradox for us between the intimacy we have with God as Father and then the otherness, the holiness, the perfection of God. This is really important, though, in cultivating this stealthy spirituality, remembering God's otherness, his uniqueness, his perfection. It takes the attention off of us. And it moves all of the attention onto him. 
So we hold these two things in tension, beginning in intimacy and holiness. And then in verse 10, Jesus starts to take a turn and start to begin to pray towards certain ends after establishing relationship, putting God in his proper place. Father, holy, in heaven, God, or Jesus begins to direct our attention to things here on earth. And in particular, directing us to pray towards shalom. Okay, this is something we talked about last Sunday. But when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we are by default praying not our will, not discovery's will, not our kingdom, not America's kingdom. We are praying for God's kingdom and God's will to be done. Now remember, this word shalom, this very rich Old Testament idea, it's rooted in the, the Genesis account of creation, Genesis 1 and 2. It is the way that God intended his world to function and flourish. And this theme runs all through this sermon. We define shalom as a hierarchy of right relationships. God in his proper place at the top of that hierarchy. Human beings as image bearers of God in their rightful place underneath him and then the rest of God's creation underneath us. This is the way God intended the world to function and flourish at its best. And when we pray, your will be done, we are praying towards these ends. Fourth thing is this prayer then deals with reality. We pray about what is real. Maybe another way of saying it is, is we pray about earthy things. In Jewish thought and teaching, what comes at the center of a teaching, of a, of a passage, is oftentimes the big idea. And the very center of this prayer is that phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. This is not just a spiritually fluffy prayer. This is about what is real, about what our actual lives uh, what goes on in our actual lives. Right after this, Jesus moves in some very earthy areas of life, bread and relationships and temptations and protection from evil on earth as it is in heaven. Now, as Jesus followers, we do have this incredible promise of heaven, of eternal life, life with God Eternally, And that's a beautiful thing. We must hold on to that. It makes sense of everything we experience here on earth. But sometimes we get so caught up in this vision of heaven, we forget about what's going on on earth. God's kingdom is invading this earth. And so we pray that God's will be done here as it is in heaven, in Davis as it is in heaven, in Yolo County as it is in heaven Jesus, in grounding the second half of this prayer in these very earthy things, reminds us that, yes, God is holy and other, but he's also our Father. And he cares about us. He wants us to eat and be in right relationship with each other, to treat each other well, to stand up for what is good. It's a very simple prayer. And yet, in just these few words, Jesus puts God at the center, takes all the attention off of us, but also deals in reality. But deals with reality in this very open-handed, trusting way, placing our trust in our Father to take care of our needs. Now, a real quick thought about how this all ends. In verse 14, Jesus says, If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And, and there's some, you know, theological hand-wringing that goes on with, with this. Like, oh, what is Jesus saying here? Do we have to forgive to, like, earn our salvation? What is going on? What's that all about? Now, on its own, you can see how you can maybe get to that conclusion. But let's remember the context of this prayer, the context of the larger sermon. Jesus has already called us to be in right relationship. That's where we ended last Sunday. And in this prayer, he's assuming that we are in the regular practice of being with people in community, working these things out. And this leads us to the final aspect of this prayer. It is not just an individual thing. It is a communal prayer. That language, our Father, lead us, forgive us, our debts, it's rooted in community, in relationships. And so Jesus is not saying here that we have to forgive to earn God's forgiveness or that we score points with him by doing this. He's simply describing reality. I like how someone on our, our teaching team put it. These are the house rules. This is how it works in the kingdom of right relationships. We're constantly working through this process of forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiving and being forgiven. And we'll see this numerous times as we move forward in Matthew's gospel. There is this deep, mysterious connection between receiving grace, experiencing forgiveness from God our Father, and then extending that, sharing that grace and forgiveness with others. Now to tie some of these themes together, in our house, we have a phrase when, when we want to help each other out. We say, I got you. Need help with the dishes, the laundry, the groceries, whatever. I got you. I got you. Through Jesus, uh, and one of the things that Jesus is laying out for us continually in this sermon is that through Jesus as king, God has said, I got you. I got you. You don't need to prove yourself. I got you. You don't need to seek approval and reward through your good behavior. I got you. You don't need to seek vengeance. I got you. You don't need to seek praise. I got you. You don't need to worry about your needs. I got you. Jesus is God saying to each of us, I got you. And the discipline that grounds us in that truth, that reminds us that God has us, is this discipline of prayer. And here's where I want us to end today is to think about instilling this discipline of prayer, this stealthy spirituality by committing to some sort of prayer practice for the next 30 days. I think there's a lot of freedom here. This can look a lot of different ways, but I, I want to just give a couple of guidelines, a couple of suggestions, and then, and then we're really going to push this conversation into groups this week. So hopefully you guys are able to have some really wonderful conversations about what this will look like for you when you get into group. So I think there's kind of two broad categories here. There's a personal challenge, there's a communal challenge. If prayer is not a regular discipline for you, if you are struggling with this idea of stealthy spirituality, I would suggest two practices. One is, is just pray this prayer that we've been talking about. Again, oftentimes called the Lord's Prayer. Pray it two times a day, once in the morning, once at night. Maybe you journal along with that. Maybe you... you you meet up with someone to talk about how that's going, but just start praying that prayer regularly. Another suggestion, again, in this sort of personal challenge category would be to 
work on the, the ancient practice called the examine. The examine comes from St. Ignatius, and the word examine means to have or to take an accurate assessment of reality. To look at a situation and, and basically call it what it is. I've heard it defined this way. The examine is a way to take a long, loving look at what is real. And there are a lot of different ways to do this. Depending on who you hear talk about it or what book you read, you'll hear different people explain it in different ways. But a, a lot of us use the examine as a way to think back through our day. Sort of, sort of like doing a, a personal highs and lows exercise. So here's what I would suggest. I think there's three R's to the examine. The first is to review the gifts of your day. Where did you see God show up? Where did you experience God as a good father? Where did you see his grace and his kingdom breaking through in your life or in the place that he has you during the day? So review the gifts and then repent of any sins. How did you violate right relationships? Do you need to seek forgiveness? Do you need to confess something that you've done? And then the third part of the examine is to resolve to live tomorrow well. To be more aware, to pay attention to God's grace, to see uh, where our good Father is at work. Even just a real simple prayer. God, give me the eyes to see tomorrow what you're doing. Okay, so there's the examine. And we'll, we'll, this will be something we come back to uh, at various points um, in the future. Now, there's, there's sort of the personal aspect to it. Then there's the communal aspect to it. Again, I hope you guys are able to work this out in groups. Maybe your group does one of these things together for the next 30 days. Maybe you break up, or find a partner or two. I don't, it doesn't matter how you do it. Figure out some way to do this together as a couple, as a family, as a discovery group. And in addition to that, be thinking through how can we be praying for our church, for our community? How can we be praying, God, your will be done on earth, in Davis, as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, acknowledge that in these teachings, Jesus is really raising the bar so high. And maybe for some of us, we sit with that reality and it feels unattainable in some way. So God, as we begin to move through what our response should be to this, I just want to begin with, with stating and naming the fact that we need your grace so much to live like this. That we could not do it without the gift of Jesus the gift of grace and forgiveness through his death and resurrection. So we name that, if there are those of us here this morning who need to acknowledge that, we begin there. And then, God, as we enter into a time of reflection, search our hearts and reveal to us where we seek the wrong reward, where we go looking for uh, affirmation and, and sometimes even in good places, but for the wrong reasons. And then, God, may, may we be a community that is marked by prayer with the next 30 days be an opportunity for us to begin exercising that muscle of stealthy spirituality. Where we're moving from intimacy with you to be 
people who are salt and light, who point to the reality of your kingdom. Again, not to draw attention to ourselves, but to say, look at how good this is. Look at what life could be like if we live with you as our king. So I pray for these next few moments, God, and make it clear to us how you want us to respond and what next step we need to take. We pray all of this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.